Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Open your Bibles up to 1 John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. If you can remember back when you were little, and maybe some of you uh, young folks are experiencing this already, um, you early on, all of us early on uh, as babies, we we only wore slip-on shoes, shoes that you could put your foot in that didn't require any kind of Velcro or, or tying your shoes. And then, then, if you were like me, I graduated to big boy Velcro shoes. When you could put your own shoes on and Velcro them closed, that was like a big day in my mind. But then after that, I, I learned that you needed to learn how to tie your shoes. And for me, uh, it felt like tying my shoes was like an impossible task. It felt like something I, I was never going to learn. Uh, and now tying my shoes feels impossible, but for a different reason. Uh, it, it's because the food in New York is delicious, uh, and I love it. But I felt like as a young child, I was never going to learn. And, and even as I grow older, I find myself wanting my slip-on shoes back. Does anyone else sympathize with that? You see, as we grow and we progress and we learn things, sometimes it feels like what we need to learn, we're never going to learn it. Or it feels like it's impossible to kind of move on to the, to the next stage of life. For, for us, many times as Christians in the Christian life, we feel like this is true of being obedient to God. We'll read the Scriptures and we know that there are things that we're supposed to do But it it feels like, for me oftentimes, and maybe you can sympathize with this, I struggle being obedient to the Word of God in certain ways. And it feels like it's a struggle that has happened to me over an extended amount of time, that I'm going to struggle with the same areas of obedience. And, And maybe you've felt even this way. This is the thesis for today. Sometimes it's easy to feel defenseless against sin or defenseless against the worldly system that's around us. I feel like in today's day and age, worldly thinking and worldly opinions is broadcasted at a volume that almost is deafening. It feels like it's, it's all around us. It's everywhere. The weapons of the devil in the world seem more powerful oftentimes than we can even resist. But here's the truth, brothers and sisters. Here's the truth. God, in His mercy, has provided us a weapon that has already overcome the world, a weapon that has already put us in a position to fight against sin and to fight for obedience. But we must take up this weapon. That's the weapon of faith and fight to obey the commands of God. 
I want to invite you at this time to stand with me, if you're able, for a reading from the Word of God. 1 John chapter 5, we'll be looking at the first five verses. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 1, says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. As I've already said, but let me just remind you again in this particular passage, faith is the weapon that brings love and victory. Faith, this is our first point today, is the weapon that brings love and victory. Now, before we discuss faith in this particular passage, or the two words that John uses to describe faith, is faith and belief. And one of the crucial questions that we need to answer before we move on to this full discussion is the question of where does faith Where does belief come from? Is faith something that's intrinsically part of who we are, or does it come from somewhere else? And in this particular answer to this question, I want to point your attention to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. And he answers, where does faith come from? It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There is a popular idea today in the world's thinking, in the world's system, that everyone is intrinsically good. And if they were just presented with the right facts about God, they would, on their own volition, choose God because that is a right decision. But this passage tells us that the ability to even believe in God, the ability to even have faith in Him, is not something that you and I have done, but in fact an incredible gift by the grace of God that He has given to us. That the very fact that you believe in God is the result of God, in His grace, giving you the gift of faith to believe. But how did that happen to us? How were we able to believe? Let me point you to Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. The reason that you believe in God is because someone in the sovereign plan of God declared the gospel of Jesus Christ to you through, his, through God's Word, and in doing so, the Holy Spirit imparted to you the faith to believe in the gospel. This is confirmed in Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. 
So if you're here today and you would say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm a child of God. I don't know if I fully believe in God or if I have been saved. That's a Christian word that means all of us are headed towards hell. All of us have earned the right to go to hell by our sin. But God saves us from this eternal punishment through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the fact that Jesus Christ paid the debt that we owed, that had earned our way to hell, and now allows us to be children of God. If you are here today and you do not know the saving grace of Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to think about these particular passages that if God has imparted you the gift of faith, that you should confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus Christ has saved you from your sin. Now, if you have believed that, here's where Christianity starts to get kind of wild, because we can understand someone having to pay a debt in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for our sins, but there is something else that God has done to us to give us the ability to believe. And this is a, a theological word. It's called regeneration. And what we're saying, what the Bible says, is that the Holy Spirit supernaturally worked in your life to transform you from one thing into another, to take you from being a sinner dead in their trespasses and sins to alive in Jesus Christ through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit has to supernaturally do something in you to change your heart, to bring you to the point where you can express the gift of faith that you've been given so that you believe in Jesus Christ. That is the whole process that Paul is talking about when he said, you didn't do this by your own works. You couldn't supernaturally change your own heart to believe in God. Only God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do that to you. And this is wonderful news. Because if it were up to me to choose God, guess what I wouldn't do? I would not choose him. Because do you know who I, and maybe you're different, but I would suggest you're probably not, do you know who I want to be God of my life? Me. I want to be the God of my life. I want to be the one who gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. I want to be the one who gets to be worshipped all the time. And I want to think that I know what's best for me. But I do not. The only way that I know what is right and what is good is that God has declared it in his word and given me the Holy Spirit to live according to his word. And because it's God that's given me the faith, because it's God that's chosen me, because it's God that's regenerated me, my salvation is secure for eternity. Is that not a blessing to you, brothers and sisters? If it is God that has secured your faith, if it is God who has changed you by the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot lose your salvation. It is impossible. You would have to be able to overpower God to be able to do that. And you might think that you're strong, but you are not stronger than God. And so for us today, especially when we feel the weight of the demonic world system impressing upon us, this should breathe in us a sigh of relief. 
Because it means that no matter how strong the devil's influence becomes in the world, he can't snatch you out of God's hand. But there are implications of this regeneration that John has been talking about all throughout this particular passage. And there's one that we often forget. There's one that often seems to be minimized in the mind of the Christian. That is that you and I, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ are overcomers of the world. That as Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection overcame sin and death and then in regenerating you made you an overcomer as well. You are completely secure in Jesus Christ from now till eternity, and you're empowered to have overcoming power now. So no whatever, whatever the evil one throws at us that John's already talked about in 1 John chapter 2, whatever our opponents throw at us in 1 John chapter 4, brothers and sisters, we have already overcome them. In the power of the Holy Spirit, there is nothing the devil can throw at you that you are powerless against because you've been changed by Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, regenerated into something new. But listen, brothers and sisters, here's the implication of this passage. Because you are an overcomer, because you have been regenerated, because you are now a child of God, when he asks us to do something in his word, his commands are not burdensome because we already have the victory. We are in, in joy getting to be obedient to his word because obedience is so small compared to what Christ has done for us to redeem us back from our sins. But don't forget, brothers and sisters, all of this that we're able to do, the ability to overcome, the ability to resist the world, the ability to resist sin is based upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he makes this clear in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has overcome the world and then imparted to us peace in knowing that we will overcome with him. And there's a beautiful word. And I, I want to give you two big reminders here today. This is the first one. Anybody wearing Nike shoes today? Anybody got on some Nikes? You got Nikes in your closet? Yeah, we're all living pretty good. Amen. There's a word here in this particular text that in the Greek is the word Nike. It's the word victory. You, brother and sister, have victory as an overcomer in Jesus Christ. And this week, when you feel stuck, when you feel defeated, let what the world has done to twist this particular idea motivate you. Because there's Nike billboards everywhere, everyone wearing Nike shoes. When you see that Nike swoosh symbol, what you should be reminded of, brothers and sisters, is the victory you have in Jesus Christ. So go home, put your Nikes on, and walk around in the victory that you have. Amen? <laughs> but what's the victory? 
What's the victory? It's not owning a Nike pair of shoes. It's the faith you've been given in Jesus Christ. The weapon that you have to fight against the world is our faith. This is a weapon of war, brothers and sisters. We are engrossed and embattled in a war. And this weapon of war that we've been given has all of its force. All of the force consists in the fact that the content of our faith is the true nature of Jesus Christ. As this passage reminds us, he is both Messiah and God. And in this passage, John tells us that our faith has helped us to overcome two things. First, faith overcomes the worldly denial of God. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone that believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And and you know that the devil has been encouraging us and tempting us to deny that God is who he says he is from the very moment of our existence. And the world is not under a different strategy right now. The world wants you. He wants you children. He wants your children. He wants all of us to deny who God is. He wants us to deny that Jesus is the only way to salvation. He wants us to deny, the world wants us to deny what John has already told us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Here's how this hits me right now. Anybody have incredible hope for the future of our country? Are you just thrilled about where we're headed? Doesn't it look like a dumpster fire out there? I mean, are you watching the same news that I'm watching? God bless our president, but he fell down again this week. Listen, I don't put that on him. He's 8,000 years old or however old he is. But listen, there is an agenda that's being pushed. And this is not a Democrat or Republican conversation. I don't trust either one. God bless them. Amen. Are you with me? You think they're for us? Neither one loves Jesus Christ. You understand this, right? But right now, the trajectory that we're headed on as a country looks like we're going right in the dumpster. And I have zero hope, none, unless, unless Jesus Christ has died for our sins. And then we don't have anything but hope because Jesus Christ can be proclaimed so that faith may be ministered to those who are living under the world system and then they can be redeemed with hope. That is where our hope lies. Our government, sorry internet, I know this, I'm not supposed to say that out there. Our government is not going to save us. They're not going to. Only Jesus Christ saves, brothers and sisters. As the propitiation of our sins. And the one who believes this has been born of God. But like I said, there are implications of our regeneration. If you say that you are born of God and you have your hope in Jesus Christ, your life 
better be marked by righteousness. Otherwise, it's not true. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Or John chapter 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born of God. Again, as we read this morning, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but by God. And here's the beautiful part, brothers and sisters. When you were born, birth was instant. It was a process that you were being born, but the moment that you left your mother's womb, you were born. The same thing happens in our salvation. When you are birthed by God, you are born of Him, you are His child, and you have been given everything that's necessary to live as a child of God. At the moment you are saved, you are given the power to overcome the worldly system of thinking that encourages us to deny God and His existence. So when you doubt about God and your faith starts to wane or it feels like it's waning a little bit, remember that God is your salvation and that he has given you the gift of faith to overcome the world and its forces. We don't have to get, give in to the worldly system in which God is denied. This one, I think, is obvious to us, the, the fact that the world wants us to deny who God is, but here's the harder one. This is again one of those times where I think it's necessary for me to say, remember, I love you, and I'm just the messenger, all right? Not only does faith encourage us to love or to fight against the worldly denial of God, faith also overcomes the worldly love of self. Self-care, me time, doing what you want to do, these are thoughts that dominate the day. And at the core of those thoughts from a worldly perspective is an unbiblical desire to worship self. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is not a new idea to First John, but what he is reminding us here what he's reminding us is that everyone that says that he loves God must also love God's children. This is the complete opposite of what we just read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, where he said, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I hope you understand what John is saying here. I'll just put this out here. If you say that you love me, but you hate one of my children, guess what? We ain't going to be friends. If you say that you love me, and you treat one of my children poorly, by extension, you don't. This is a pretty simple concept. But somehow... In modern Christianity, 
it has become normal and acceptable to think that we can say that we love God and then treat each other like garbage. That is not biblical Christianity. And so much of it is guised under this umbrella of what it means to actually love yourself. But in the power of the gospel in which we have had faith ministered to each other, we've been given the power to not love myself above all else, but to love God and love other Christians in a way that defies worldly thinking. Hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you should care for others to the point that you destroy your own health. That is not what I'm saying. I am not saying that you should give all your money away to foolish people as an act of love. That is not what I'm saying. I'm saying be wise in what God has given you to steward. But if you spend the bulk of your time thinking about how you're going to appease yourself, you may not be a lover of God. Faith has empowered us to overcome the idea that you are the most important person in the universe. And I love you, but you and I, we are not the most important being in the universe. God is. God is the most important being in the universe. And our lives must be dedicated to serving Him as an act and a response to the new birth. But love and victory, loving others, loving God, and victory over the world come into fruition in a particular way. You can say that you have love all day long. You can say that you have victory all day long. But that should be seen in the life of the believer. And we've mentioned this already. Love and victory come into fruition. They become visible in obedience to the commands to love. Think about it this way. In, in verse 2, what we find here is obedience is the very best way to show your love of God and love of others. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now, look how he, he structured this here. He doesn't say, by this we know that we love God. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. Now, how do we know that we love the children of God? He answers, when we love God, by doing what? By obeying His commands. Remember, he's already touched on this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. One of the results of regeneration is that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He continues on in verse 2. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Now, what commandments has John said that it's necessary for us to keep? They're the two greatest commandments. Love of God, love of neighbor. Love of God, love of neighbor as yourself. You see, this is what the love of God involves. But not just the love of God. 
According to this passage, this includes the love of others as well. This has to be in our thoughts and ingrained in how we live when we think about the church at large. Here, this is a point that must sink in. Brothers and sisters, one of the most loving things that we can do for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is to obey God's commands. One of the most loving things that you can do for your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ is to be obedient to God's commands. And I would say that that there are three main reasons for this. One, tasks are made easier when we do them together. If we are collectively attempting to be obedient to the Word of God, and we're helping each other obey the commands of God, all of a sudden, the commands seem to be easier, and they seem to be lighter. Even just in simple tasks, right? We understand this to be true. If you must pick up something heavy and carry it, it's much better to do so with another person. But maybe some of you have even experienced this inside of the body of Christ. This is how obedience continues to be communicated to other believers. When things get tough, aren't you inspired when you see someone else persevering? When you're trying to be obedient to the Word, and you hit a spot in your life that's difficult, and you see someone else persevering in the same way that you need to be persevering, aren't you inspired to keep going? Let me sum all of those up to say God has structured His church in such a way because we truly do need each other to keep going. It is very difficult to be a believer in isolation. But when you have other brothers and sisters around you who are attempting to obey the Word of God, in that moment we are ministering the love of God to each other and encouraging us to keep going. Now, I've mentioned this second point already, but I want to emphasize it to you. I want it to really impress upon you. Because sometimes when we think about being obedient, obedience doesn't sound like a very fun thing. Kids, do you like obeying your parents? Any kids like obeying your parents? If any of you say yes, I'll trade one of my kids for whoever has that kid. Just kidding. Oh, oh, and you want to get traded to another family? All right, fine. We don't typically like to obey. I, I am a bit of a contrarian by nature. Any other contrarians in here? If you're a true contrarian, you would say, I'm not a contrarian to that. that. So, as a Christian, when I hear that there are commands that I'm supposed to obey, it starts to already feel like a weight. It starts to feel heavy. Maybe even the word I would use is oppression. Maybe I've said it this way. The Christian life is hard. And there's some truth to that, isn't it? There are times that we're going to be confronted with situations that are difficult. There are times where we're going to have to choose between having a friend or loving God. There are times where we're going to have to choose 
between doing the right thing and honoring the Lord or doing the wrong thing and dishonoring Him. And those decisions are hard. But we have to remember what John has already told us in 1 John chapter 3. To not obey is to practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. To disobey the commands of God is to practice lawlessness. Let me, let me suggest to you that maybe there's another reason why sometimes our obedience feels burdensome. In religious practice, there are many, myself included, who love to make up rules. We love to make up all kinds of different rules and then practice obeying them and sometimes even look down on others who don't obey them. And oftentimes our conscience is heavily weighed down with obedience to certain rules that when we actually look at the Word of God, you can't find those commands anywhere in the Scriptures. So before we put our hand to the plow, so to speak, in terms of obeying the commands of God, we need to make sure that we're obeying the commands of God, that we're not obeying worldly commands, that we know what the Word of God says and what His commands actually are. Matthew describes this in his gospel, Matthew 23, verse 4. He's talking about the religious types of the day. He says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This is an instant way to tell if you're talking to someone who's in a religious system that doesn't obey God's commands but obeys worldly commands. They want you to be obedient to rules that they aren't obedient to. But here's what, here's what Jesus says about what obeying the commands are, are actually like. Matthew chapter 11, verse 30. Maybe some of you are familiar with this particular verse. But Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And this has been true all the way back into the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. In that particular passage, he's talking about the, the law of the Old Testament. And he says that it, it is not difficult for you to keep. And he references something similar that's happening in this particular, reason, in this particular passage. You see, the, the reason that they're not burdensome, according to this particular passage, is found in verse 4. These are not burdensome, number one, because God has already done all the work to make you His child. And as a child of God, you have access to all the resources that the Father would give you. But not only has you made, He made you His child, Christ in His power has already won the victory. He's already perfectly obeyed the law and then died in our place so that you can now be obedient to the commands to love God and love others in such a way that brings Him glory. You see, what the Lord has asked us to do is not burdensome. Loving Him and loving others, done in the power of His Spirit, not in our own strength, but in the power of His Spirit, is a joy. But again, I already gave you one reminder, remember, 
victory, Nike, that you already have. And I think John ends this particular passage with another reminder as well. This should be the mantra of our week. This should be the thing that you repeat to yourself constantly when you feel burdened, when you feel weighed down. You should repeat to yourself verse 5 and never underestimate the power of a simple reminder. What is the reminder in verse 5? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Brothers and sisters, do you today believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus is both God and man? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins after he lived a perfect life so that he could be the perfect sacrifice? Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? If you believe this, brothers and sisters, then it is you that overcomes the world. I think what John is addressing here is this tendency that we have as humans to forget something that we heard three seconds later. Do you ever walk into a room attempting to do something and you walk into that room and forget why you were in that room? You do already, Nora and Johanna, you guys forget. <laughs> Woo! You too? Wow, that's like an old people thing. You guys, that's wild. All right. But if that's true of just basic things, how true is that of the Christian life? I forget incredible truths that God has communicated to us through His Word on a regular basis, and I must be reminded of the truth of God's Word. These two things help us remember two, or this thing helps us remember two things that are so very important, who you are and who you serve, who you are and who you serve. If you believe these truths, brothers and sisters, you are a child of God, and you do not serve the world, but you serve God. And as you serve God, He continues to empower you to overcome in victory through the work of His Holy Spirit so that you can live a life that at the end you hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Who you are and who you serve. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's you, brother. That's you, sister. You have in you the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the world. And in doing so, you preach the gospel, you speak the gospel, you live the gospel of Jesus Christ so that the Holy Spirit will also give the gift of faith to those who hear and see. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us live in the victory He's given us. Lord, oftentimes we feel defeated, we feel deficient, we feel as if we lack obedience. But this passage today reminds us that this moment, this very second, can be the moment where we as Christians in the power of the Spirit, decide to be obedient to your Word.
Lord, strengthen us to do that. Help us to realize the victory that we've been given in you. But this could also be the moment that for the very first time, that someone who is hearing the gospel, whether physically present or online, today this moment could be the very first time that they cry out to you in belief and faith and receive the forgiveness that only you give through the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we're asking you to do both of these things today because only you can. Only you can strengthen believers to endure, and only you can save the lost. But Lord, help us to remain faithful. Help us to persevere as overcomers who resist the world and resist the ways of the devil, resist our own flesh, and instead have a life that's dedicated to being obedient to your commands. Help us as a church to be unified in encouraging each other to be obedient to your commands. Help us to, to love each other and to love you in such a way that your gospel is declared in and through us. Help us even today. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.